Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Hope everyone is having a great day today. And a special shout out to my good friend, Yoshiko Dart. Getting ready, hopefully, to see you at the Epilepsy Walk coming up in the next weekend. Um, And I have to tell you that being a woman with epilepsy, I want to thank all of you that do go to the walk or send money because you know that means a lot to me, so thank you very much. Really excited about the show today. I think everyone will agree that all of our listeners will agree that this is quite a serious time uh, in the government, so many things happening at the same time. And one of those things that I think is a very important issue to all people with disabilities is what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act. So for that reason, I have two superstar experts on the show with me today, Chris Griffin, who all of you know, the executive director at the Disability Law Center of Massachusetts, and just a great advocate for people living with disabilities, and the same thing with Andy Imperato. Um, Many of you know Andy, and you know he's the executive director of the Association of University Centers on Disability. So... Chris and Andy, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Joyce. Thanks, Joyce. Great to be here. Well, you know, um, we're getting a lot of calls, and a lot of people are really worried. Uh, They want to know what's going on. And so we made a decision, I made a decision, that throughout the year I would have the two of you on. Tony can't be on this time, but he will be on the next time. Uh, The three of you, because you are three experts and hopefully can answer a lot of questions that we have all been receiving, um, and, and that keeps us connected and educated. So that's why I want you two on. And before we get going, I know you've both known each other for a long time. Just out of curiosity, when did you first meet, uh, and how long individually have you both worked in the disability community? Chris, do you want to take that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what year it actually was. I was still in law school, so it was the early 90s. 19... Yeah, I think it was 93. 92, 93, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Andy and I happened to be at the same train. We didn't know each other. We were on a tra- We were at a training that somebody, actually it was Liz Savage, was doing uh, when she was with Doretta for the uh, P&As of New England. And Andy at the time was a fairly new attorney on a fellowship working at the Disability Law Center, the organization I now um, am the executive director of. And I met him there first, but then when I got to back to law school last fall, I saw a sign that said, design your own public English job. And it was about applying for a Skadden fellowship. And it said, call this number. I called the number, and it was Andy Imperato's voice. And I, as soon as I heard his voice, I said, we actually met this summer at that training. And so Andy encouraged me to actually apply for Skadden Fellowship. He introduced me to Susan Butler Plum, who runs the fellowship. 
and we've been fast friends ever since, and I have been following him around for years. Uh, well, here, as Senator, Senator Harkin uh, sometimes says that uh, uh, I used to work for him, and now he works for whoever, whatever staff person he's going to visit. That is the same thing with Chris. She, she well eclipsed me, and I'm honored to have her as a friend and colleague. Well, that's well, very okay. nice. I wouldn't say eclipsed. Okay, and here's my bit of trivia. I met Chris Griffin via Andy Imperato. So we're just all connected in some way. That is how that is how yeah. we met. That's how we met. Because Andy kept telling me, I want you to meet this person. I know you'll really like them. Chris Griffin and he was right of course. So yeah. thank you. Thank you, Andy, for that. Thank Absolutely. you, Andy. So, Chris, for our listeners, before we get into this, and it really is serious, we really have a lot of people uh, that have been reaching out to me uh, and Mary and other people that work here, so worried about so many issues. And I know when I go to the Epilepsy uh, Foundation board meeting and walk this this, uh, weekend, I know that I'll be hearing this and having a lot of questions. So um, I want to first go over what you do. So, Chris, could you tell everyone what the Disability Law Center is that you Mm -hmm. lead and also uh, not just the mission but how you're part of a national organization? All right. Well, the Disability Law Center is what's known as the Protection and Advocacy Agency in the state of Massachusetts. And it sounds governmental, but it really isn't. Um, it's governmental in that the federal government, Congress, actually created the PNA system, Protection Advocacy, the Individuals with Disabilities. And they did it when in the early, mid-70s, um, there was an exposure of conditions in institutions that house people with developmental disabilities. And as a result of that, they said, we need, we need private entities legally based entities in every state and territory to make sure that people are protected. And and then things sort of mushroomed from there where Congress gave us more authority, more funding to actually advocate for all people with disabilities throughout the state. There is an organization like mine in every single state and territory, and there's one for Native Americans. So there are 57 protection advocacy organizations, and we make up what's known as the National Disability Rights Network. And we have sort of a, a, a trade membership organization uh, that does a lot of training and advocacy as well in Washington, D.C., headed up by Kurt Decker, and that's called the National Disability Rights Network. And so uh, we rely on them to keep us informed throughout the country of things that are happening nationally, and we focus on what's happening to people with disabilities in our state. Okay, well, and you are a very powerful group because, as I recall, you can go in anywhere um, if you think there's an issue such as school, uh, prison, hospital, wherever it is. Uh, and is, is that correct, Chris? That's correct. We have authority. That's what's unique about us. So unlike legal services that can just represent people, we can do that too. But we can also, and, and this is our core mission, we also have the authority to go into um, anywhere that 
frankly, that people with disabilities are housed, except, you know, their private homes, although there are circumstances where you could do that, too. But really, going into facilities like state psychiatric facilities, I am calling you right now from Bridgewater State Hospital, and this is a a hospital uh, prison-type facility run by the Department of Corrections. Um, and there's a number of state psychiatric facilities that we still have uh, a couple of developmental disability institutions open, although they've been more progressive about closing them. Uh, so, yeah, we can, we can go into schools. Anywhere where there is uh, an allegation of abuse and neglect or that we just feel it, it's time for the place to be monitored so that we can see for ourselves. Uh, that is outstanding. Uh, how about you, Andy? You want to talk about what you do and what the organization is? Sure. So I work for the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, and like Chris's network, our network was created in the same piece of legislation, which is now called the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act, and it created three networks, all of which exist at the, at the state and territory level, the protection and advocacy agencies, the developmental disabilities councils, and the university centers for excellence in developmental disabilities. So AUCD represents those 67 university centers for excellence around the country. There's one at Temple Choice in, in Pennsylvania. And then we also represent interdisciplinary training programs um, that are training leaders across multiple disciplines and how to work with children with developmental disabilities and their families. Those programs are called Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. And Joyce, you've met the folks that um, work at that on that program in Pittsburgh. Um, and then we also have a kind of a hard science network funded by NIH called Intellectual and Developmental Disability Research Centers. So the way I like to talk about our network, Joyce, if you add all their budgets together, it's a $650 million research and development arm for the disability field where one of the things we're developing is people. And we have, like Chris's network, we have capacity in every state and territory. Yeah, right, and you have a conference coming up. Yeah, well, so right now in D.C., um, we are part of something called a Disability Policy Seminar with five other national organizations where we have a 1,000 grassroots advocates from around the country in Washington right now to learn about what's happening in policy, including the health care issues that we're going to be talking about. And they're all going up to the hill as part of it, so it's, they're in town at a very good time to be going up to the hill. Yeah, yeah. And Joyce, we are part of what Andy described is in every state we have what's called the DD network. So while the PNA is funding to do advocacy for different types of people with different types of disabilities, on the developmental disability side of the, the house, we are connected to our university centers for excellence as well as our de uh, developmental disability councils, and we all work together to support self-advocates and do a number of other things. Yeah, well, it's all about, with both of you, disability rights, civil rights, uh, and as Andy said, developing people. So that, that is a, that, those are two great organizations, and I just want everyone to know about them. Um, and, Chris, you are in Massachusetts. What is your uh, website? 
Our website is www.dlc-ma.org. And yeah, okay. please take a look. Yep. Could you repeat that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. www.dlc-ma.org. And please, I'd encourage everyone to take a look at our website, take a look at our priorities, comment on them, if you will. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And Andy, how about you? Yes, thank you for the opportunity, Joyce. Our, our website is aucd.org, so Association of University Centers on Disabilities, aucd.org. And one of the things that um, you can sign up for on our website is our weekly updates from Washington. If people want to track what's happening in policy that affects people with disabilities, we do a Monday afternoon update called In Brief. And then every Tuesday we do a video on YouTube where Liz Weintraub, who's an advocate that works for us, interviews somebody that's working in policy and tries to have a conversation where people who are not policy experts can kind of follow what they do and understand why it's important. Oh, wow. that's good, Andy. That yeah. is good, Andy. That's good. Very good. All right. Well, now we get down to the serious stuff here. As you both know, uh, there are proposed changes uh, to the Affordable uh, Care Act that will become the Affordable Health Care Act, and there will be serious impacts on many issues, specifically Medicaid, uh, because a 25% cut over 10 years is very frightening. I know that there are people with disabilities, though, that don't, they don't really even understand the impacts it will have on them or their family, and, um, and, and they need to know. And actually, we're going to be um, in our archives suggesting people to go back to this show over and over so they'll know what's going on. But uh, Chris and Andy, what are the most significant Im- negative impacts you see? Well, I, you know, people with disabilities need Medicaid for, you know, just not only access to health care, but to obtain long-term supports and services that really, that's what allows you to live, work, go to school, and play in the community. And I just, you know, without Medicaid, you know, living in the community for for our, you know, for our folks with disabilities in every state, that, you know, that could seriously come to an end. Uh, we might be looking at, you know, different types of institutionalization if we're not going to be able to provide them with a way to live independently in the community. That's the biggest, broadest statement I could make. Yeah, and Joyce, I would just add, um, you know, we've been working in coalition with a number of groups, including Chris's network, to organize people to protect the Medicaid program in the context of this debate around repealing the Affordable Care Act. And we have a hashtag on Twitter that's just save Medicaid. So if people want to learn more about what's going on and what's at stake, if you, if you go on Twitter and you look at that hashtag, you'll see lots of great resources from a lot of different groups, including the National Health Association of Health Law Programs, um, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation. There are a number of groups in Washington that have produced a lot of good user-friendly materials on what's at stake. But, you know, I, I think what's important to recognize, Joyce, is the, the Republicans in Congress are working with the White House to repeal the Affordable Care Act 
and to dramatically change the Medicaid program at the same time. And they all campaigned on repealing the Affordable Care Act. They did not campaign on radically changing the Medicaid program. And unfortunately, the Medicaid program is complicated, and a lot of Americans don't realize how many people are served by that program, what an economic driver it is at the state level. But fundamentally, what they are doing in this bill that the House is going to be voting on this week, they're scheduled to vote on it this week, is they are telling the states that they're going to give them a limited amount of money from the feds to pay for Medicaid and leave it up to the states whether they make up for that lost money or cut services. And the population that is most at risk in this, in this context of the feds shrinking their commitment are people who are the most expensive folks on Medicaid, and that's people with yeah. disabilities and people yeah. you know, who are seniors. So, um, you know, this, this is a serious threat to one of the most important supports that people with disabilities have in the community. And it's direct, Joyce, I know you're passionate about employment. It's directly connected to employment. If we don't have a robust Medicaid program, then people who need long-term services and supports are not going to be able to get those supports that they need to get to work and be successful in the workforce. Yeah, this is this has huge, huge, huge implications for our community, and we finally got to a place. I swear that you know we were rejoicing when we saw what Medicaid, uh, CMS had put out on a home and community-based services rule about what even living in the community meant. We had got that far. Um, in, in progressing from not only giving people the sports and services, but really now starting to focus on what does it really mean to live in the community. And we're going, we're just taking a, a giant leap backwards if uh, this block granting goes through. Um, and it will be different in every state. And so there really has to be, you know, not only an effort to fight this nationally uh, from Congress you know, from that point of view, but in every single state, um, there has to be a, an organized effort to make sure that your state doesn't implement whatever they are handed uh, in a way that's most harmful. But most states, even Massachusetts, as generous as they are and as 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 supportive as they are of, of the community. Um, you know, they won't be able to withstand just block granting. There won't be, there just won't be enough money to, to cover it all. Right now we get 50-50. So what it means is the federal government matches what the state pays, and there's no cap on how many people can enroll. There's no cap on that whatsoever. The state has to be willing to put up their 50%, and if they do, they get 50% of it from the federal government. Well, the block grant will will eliminate the ability to enroll new people. It will, in some cases, actually make, you know, make them have to turn people away and implement policies and procedures that really drastically cut the number of people that are on, uh, that use Medicaid to, as I said, live, work, learn, and play in the community. And um, it's, it's scary, to say the least. Yeah, well, one of the um, many questions, but one of the questions that people have been asking is, what is the difference with President Trump's bill 
Paul Ryan's bill and whatever is being proposed. What 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 is the difference? What are the what is the main difference as relates to Medicaid? Well, there really is just one bill right now, Joyce. I mean, yeah. the White the White House worked closely with Speaker Ryan's office, and when Speaker Ryan introduced his bill, it had the endorsement of the President and the White House, and they've been working together to try to get that bill through the House, and they will work together to try to get it through the Senate. So it's really one Republican bill that is the vehicle that they're trying to move together. I think the question is how they often talk about, well, you know, how they're fighting or arguing about agreeing on information with this bill. What, what, were, the main, what were the main things that were different? Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a conservative wing in the Republican caucus, especially in the House, but there are members of the Senate that agree with them that feel that the Ryan bill uh, didn't go far enough and it left too many things in place that were part of uh, Obamacare or part of the Affordable Care Act, and they want something that's more of a straight repeal and not as much of a replace. So the Ryan bill has some stuff left in place that some conservatives are trying to get stripped out of the bill. And then there are moderates, uh, particularly in the Senate, but there are some in the House who feel that the bill is too draconian and they want to see more protections for things like the Medicaid expansion um, and other things that have happened since the, the Affordable Care Act originally passed. So right now, it's a fight within the Republican Party, unclear you know, how, how it will get resolved. I think some people are assuming they'll be able to get enough votes to get it through the House, and then there will be some changes to get it through the Senate. But we don't know what those changes are. Yeah, the other interesting yeah. thing, Joyce, is um, they deliberately didn't deal with insurance market reforms in this House bill, including the you know pr- prohibition against pre-existing condition exclusions, right. one of the reasons they didn't deal with that in this bill is under the Senate rules, those changes would have would have been able people would have been able to filibuster it, and to break a filibuster you need 60 votes, so they would have needed to find Democratic senators to support that. Um, so you may remember Joyce when they passed the original Affordable Care Act. They did it, including the insurance market reforms, and they needed 60 votes to get that passed in the Senate. This bill that's working its way through the House, because it's not touching the insurance market reforms, it only needs 51 votes, and there are 52 Republican senators. So, um, you know, the ability of the Democrats to have an impact on this in the Senate is going to be limited. Yeah. And I think, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, pre-existing conditions is still in there. Um, right. There's a, there are some good things that were in the original Affordable yeah. Care Act that, that are in this category of insurance market reforms. Right. People being able to keep their cover, the kids being able to keep the coverage until age 26 on their parents' yeah. insurance, yeah. that's still in there. And interestingly, a lot of Republicans say they, they like those things. They like those two provisions, Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. if you if you change all the other stuff that was in the Affordable Care Act, including the stuff that's trying to make sure that people have every incentive to actually buy insurance and and get subsidized to be able to afford insurance, um, a lot of people are worried that the pre-existing condition thing just isn't going to work from a business standpoint, because the whole point of insurance is 
you're spreading risk across lots of people. Right. And if people can wait until they get sick to buy insurance, it messes up the, the business model for insurance unless you have you know a public yeah. option or a single-payer system in which it wouldn't matter. So um, I think a lot of people are worried that this is this is kind of a two-step dance, and they're going to get what they can through with with you know 51 yeah. votes in the Senate, and then they're going to realize that the pre-existing condition stuff doesn't work in this model, and they're going to try to do uh, other things that are going to make it harder for people to get insurance if they have pre-existing conditions or chronic yeah. health conditions. Yeah, because. Uh, People with pre-existing conditions or chronic health care issues, um, hopefully they still will be able to gain insurance coverage. I know they're saying they'll keep it, but as Andy said, it's that two-dance move. What's going to happen? But no matter what, with these changes to Medicaid, my question is, is this going to allow insurers to favor members that are healthy or members that do not have a disability? Well, again, Joyce, I think the uh, you know before the Affordable Care Act passed, it was hard for a lot of people. Like we have uh, a woman who works in our network who has a son with Down syndrome, and you know she and her husband have their own business, and they basically were uninsurable. They could not find private insurance, yeah. you know, pre pre Obamacare. And because of the insurance market reforms that were written into the Affordable Care Act and the creation of the the exchanges, they were able to find a plan that worked for them that they could afford. And there's a real concern that if this repeal bill goes through, um, the the marketplace is going to change so dramatically that people like them are going to not be able to find a product that they can afford. So we're going to go back, and you can look at the CBO you know, estimate on the number of people that are going to lose insurance, we're going to go back to a system where we have lots of people in this country who do not have insurance and can't find an insurance product that they can afford, and that will be meaningful for them if they end up having expensive needs. Yeah. Yeah, Do you think people understand this? I don't. I don't think they do. It is complicated. It's very complicated. And we haven't even got into the people that are on Medicare but are also uh, supplemented uh, with Medicaid. And that's a lot of elderly people, people in nursing homes, that are all going to be impacted by this as well. So, um, Well, let, let's just skip right down to that because um, that, that actually was one of my questions uh, about elderly people that utilize Medicaid to pay for assisted living or nursing homes. So what's going to happen if well, this bill goes through? If you block grant this and, uh, um, you know, the state only gets so much Medicaid money, you know, there's going to come a point in time pretty quickly in most states where they can't afford to actually pay for people uh, in various settings. Um, they won't be able to provide long-term supports and services that we talked about, but they also won't be able to afford to keep uh, the numbers of, of people in nursing homes and nursing homes. And, well, that's, that would be good for us and our community if they would get them out of nursing homes. Uh, the reality is there will be no place else for them to go. And, 
you know, I know, I, I think the thinking is that everyone will go home and their families will take care of them. Well, that's not possible. And some of these people actually do not have any families. So I think the states, uh, while some states are actually trying to already implement block granting themselves, uh, and and that's frightening, they're, they're not even waiting for Congress, you have other states like Massachusetts where you have a Republican governor that's written to Congress saying don't do this. You know, give us flexibility, but don't don't actually block grant so that we now have to focus on getting people off of uh, off of a, a healthcare system that that we built. So and just bu- just building on yeah. what Chris was saying, Joyce. You know, let's remember that there's an institutional bias built into the Medicaid program right now, which means if you have a level of severity of disability where you're eligible for a care in a nursing home, the state is required to provide that care for you. Yeah. And then we have, we have all these optional services in the community, even though the vast majority of people would rather get long-term services and supports in the community, that's optional. So now if you're living in, a, in an environment where the federal commitment has shrunk, the amount of money that is available to support people in the Medicaid program has gone down, the services that are most vulnerable are all the optional services. And it's the optional services that are supporting people with disabilities in the community. Um, so that's a, that's a serious concern. Um, there's also, there was a provision that we haven't talked about in the Affordable Care Act that would be repealed if this Republican bill becomes law, which was the community first choice option. And that yeah. was an effort that Senator Harkin championed uh, in, when the Affordable Care Act was being written that said, as a federal government, we recognize that there's an institutional bias in the Medicaid program, and we want to give states incentives to help get people out of institutions and serve them in the community. So we're going to give them an enhanced match at the federal level. So you get more, more of the money comes from the feds to pay for the services for people who would meet the institutional level of care uh, and want to be served in the community. And a number of states have taken advantage of that, and now that enhanced match is also at risk if, this bill, if the bill gets repealed. Yeah, this has implications. Just, uh, I don't even know if we, we can comprehend the magnitude of it yet. Um. Yeah, I mean, it is... It touches so many things, as Andy said. A lot of it is connected to employment. When people can't get services, can't afford this. Uh, I mean, there's so there's such it's such a like a death spiral. It really is. Right. It's terrible. It really is we terrible. Have, right. Some of the states, like Massachusetts, have Medicaid uh, buy-in programs where you can work and you can actually. Your health insurance may not cover through work, may not cover personal care attendance, but you can actually buy into the Medicaid program even though you're, you're working and everything. And it's on a sliding ski, fit, sliding ski scale. And you can get uh, services that you need to, you know, frankly help you get up and, and get going uh, and ready to go to work and to get you to work and, and all of those things. Those folks, uh, won't be able to get those services. This is a huge impact for people being able to get to work. Yes, it is. It is a huge impact. 
Well, uh, Joyce, can I, can I bring up another issue that, that we haven't talked about? But, you know, this is kind of an interesting story. When I was working at AAPD, the American Association of People with Disabilities, where Chris is the chair of the board and Joyce, you're also on the board, I got a call from a law professor at Harvard named Elizabeth Warren. This was back when she was a law professor. And she, she called me because she wanted me to know that she had been looking at the data around personal bankruptcies. And she found that one half of the personal bankruptcies in the United States at that time were people that could not afford to pay their health care bills. And the reason she was calling me at AAPD is she wanted to make sure that the disability community was looking at things like bankruptcy reform because it directly affects people with disabilities that you know have expensive health care bills connected to their disabilities. And I, I think if we are in a system where people can't get insurance and we have millions and millions of more people who are uninsured, what does that mean? That means all okay. of those people are at risk of having to declare bankruptcy when something bad happens and they can't afford the care. And in some cases, you know, you get in a car accident, you're not even conscious. People are making decisions for you, and the tab is going up, and you're on the hook for paying that. And if you don't have insurance, for most people, the only option is to declare bankruptcy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that example you even gave, Andy, a person's in an automobile accident, now they have quadriplegia, now they need all this long-term care, they need, before they're even that far, you know, in many cases, this is so expensive that there are people that do not have a substantial income that that is exactly what would happen. Yep. Yeah, that is. <laughs> and that, and that. Joyce, that affects every American. You know, if, if you go yeah. back to kind of the, the talking points when they were working on the Affordable Care Act, they said they wanted to cover the uninsured. Well, one of the reasons they wanted to cover them so people had protection against this kind of stuff happening. And they wanted to bend the cost curve, meaning they wanted to bring the cost of health care down. And re- if we repeal this bill, we go back to what we had before, which was a health care system that was not going to work for people that had high-cost needs and, and were difficult to insure. Um, and, you know, that, you know, you can think about this from a human rights perspective, Joyce. We are the wealthiest country in the world. We should be able to provide health insurance for all of our citizens so that it's there for them when they need it the most. And I think that's the issue. Even people that have insurance, you talked about quadriplegia, Joyce. Insurance that you get from your employer is not going to pay for somebody to help you get out of bed and and get dressed and get to work. That's where Medicaid comes in. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that they're they're taking away people's insurance and they're shrinking the Medicaid program at the same time, it's a double whammy. Yeah. yeah. A good example of this would be uh, you both know Jamie, who has a great job at Highmark. But Jamie has a very significant, very significant cerebral palsy and has to use augmentative communication. But he needs a personal attendant to get him up, dressed, and goes to work. They come at lunchtime to help him with food and restroom and, you know, at night, you know, what's going to happen to people? What will happen to those people? Yeah. Yeah. 
that's exactly, I mean, that's the question. What will happen to those people? And, and you know, I, Jamie will stay at home with his mother. Uh, Jamie will, you know, someone like Jamie will end up in a nursing home prematurely. Uh, you know, things like that, if that's even possible. Um, because or or people, keep, uh, people will die prematurely. I mean, yeah, this really yeah. is a life... Life and death issue choice, and oh, and again, is, I mean, yeah. this this was not something that people campaigned on. You know, the debate was about repealing the Affordable Care Act. It wasn't about fundamentally restructuring the Medicaid program, and it's incredibly complicated. So the fact that they're doing it quickly, without even time to have a real thorough public debate about it, is just wrong. Yeah. You know, this gets me so fired up because this is a life issue. I mean, this is serious. This is really serious. This, to me, is a, like a human rights violation. It I is. mean, when you're putting people in a situation where they could die, let, you yeah. know, let alone all of the other ways their life is going to be impacted, it's wrong. And here we have a whole set of questions. I'll never be able to go through all these with you. But let me move up to this question we have from a Linda in Harrisburg. The question is, in reference to uh, these changes coming, what can I do if it impacts my family in a significant way? What will I be able to do? Well, right now, what you should be doing is, is calling your congressman, your senator, and telling them that this this will have a, a disastrous impact on your family and your family members. Um, but I would also say, also get active in your state. Find out what your state's position on this is. Start actually talking to state legislators about what they what their plans are. If this happens, you know, some of them are actually rejoicing that block grant is coming, which I find astonishing. Uh, but most states aren't. So find out what you can do in your state to make sure that, you know, if this does get passed, you know, you're, you're talking to people about the impact on you and, and advocating for it not to have that impact. And I would just add first, you know, I want to do a shout-out to Senator Casey from Pennsylvania, yeah. who, as, as Joyce well knows, has been an extraordinarily strong champion for protecting the Medicaid program and is really stepping up to be kind of a disability champion writ large. Um, so, you know, I think if you haven't shared your story with Senator Casey's office so they can talk about how this is impacting somebody in Harrisburg, Take the time to do that. And again, if you look at that Save Medicaid hashtag on Twitter, you'll see lots of resources and different ways to share your story with your, your congressional delegation. And the other thing I would add to what Chris said is um, when you're doing the work at the state level, work in coalition. You know, work yeah. with your, your DD partners at the state level. Work with the independent living centers and, and other community-based organizations recognizing that there's a lot of people working on it, and if they all are working together with the same message, it's hard to ignore. Yeah, and you've got to speak up. By the way, I agree with you. Senator Casey, we are so lucky to have him. He is fabulous. He is really a great person. Uh, But you've got to speak up. 
You know, now is the time. You've got to speak up. You've got to do something. Um, you know, and with the number of people living in this country with disabilities, you know, I just don't understand why we can't have more of an impact. And I guess that's because we're not united. Is, is that what you would say, Chris? What do you think about well, that? I think there are a lot of people that don't consider themselves people with disabilities that have all sorts of different types of conditions, diseases, whatever you want to call them, and they just don't identify as a person with a disability. So they're not, they're not paying attention to this as much as maybe our community is. And so, uh, unfortunately for a lot of people, it, it, it's not going to hit them that this change impacts them until it does, until they're harmed. Uh, and and it might be too late in those circumstances. So I really wish the rest of the country would wake up and rally and 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 do something because I think there are millions and millions of people that will be impacted by this and they're not even seeing it come. I you know I I so I so agree with you. What were you going to say, Andy? Yeah, I just I, I guess you know having been in Washington since '93, Joyce. I think the disability community, you know, writ large, the organized disability community in Washington and around the country is as united around protecting the Medicaid program as I've ever seen them united on anything, even the Americans with Disabilities Act. There is a lot of unanimity that this House bill will be bad for people with disabilities and that these reforms in the Medicaid program spell less money, less resources, and worse services for people with disabilities on the ground. So I do think the disability community is united. I agree with what Chris said. We still have lots of people with disabilities who aren't connected to any disability organization, and they don't always have a consciousness around that there is a disability movement to plug into or, or how to plug into it. And then there are, you know, I mean, the bottom line is we're the canary in the coal mine on this the stuff that we're fighting for is stuff that will benefit every American. You know, it's about having a system that works no matter what happens to you. You know, that's the whole point of insurance. Yeah. Um, and, and we do not have that in this country. I have to read you this comment from Ted in Chicago. Here's what it is. It says, thank you for doing this show. I'm afraid because we don't know what we don't know. So powerful, so powerful, but for many people, so true. Um, many people, you know, that got in touch with me uh, do not understand this Medicaid block grant. They don't understand what that is. And, Andy, could you just take a moment? I know you talked about it earlier, but explain a little bit more specifically what that is, or Chris, either one. Yeah, well, I mean, so there's two things that are being talked about in the context of this Medicaid reform. One is a block grant, which basically is telling a state, this is how much money we'll give you as a federal government. You decide how to spend it, but we're, that number is not going to go up. So if your costs go up, you're going to have to figure out how to meet, meet those costs. We're not coughing up any more money as a federal government, which fundamentally changes the individual entitlement. The way it works right now is if somebody's eligible for services, the state pays their share, the feds pay their share, and there's no, there's no cap on how much they can spend. The other thing that was in the bill that Ryan introduced, which is related, is a per capita cap. 
And it's a very similar concept, Joyce. The idea is how many people do you serve in the Medicaid program? What categories are they in? How much are you spending now? And we're going to cap you on not spending any more than that on your population as, as, they, as the costs go up. In both cases, what it means is the federal government's commitment to this program is shrinking and the states are going to be left holding the bag. And they can either make up for the lost federal dollars, which the vast majority of states are in no position to do financially, or they have to figure out how to cut services. So when you hear things like block grant, per capita cap, state flexibility, it all sounds very confusing. The best way to think about it is the feds are dramatically shrinking their role and services are going to be cut on the ground because of it. Yeah, and uh, a lot of, so many, as Chris said, so many things are connected to Medicaid, Planned Parenthood. Like a lot of people don't realize, they, they think it's one thing, and they're so wrong. It does so much. Testing, uh, providing, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, health care preventative measures for people uh, with no time waiting, just getting right in. Uh, but that's because this is sort of like an octopus. I mean, its, it's tentacles are involved in so many things that it's really, it's really enormous. I mean, it is enormous. And um, the last few minutes, I wanted to ask both of you just your opinion what of all these things we've talked about not talked about what what worries you the most and what do you think is the most important message to our listeners Andy you go first well you know I, I kind of am thinking a lot about Justin Dart and I appreciated you starting the, the show with a shout out to Yoshiko you know, Justin told us that we needed to get into politics because our life depends upon it. And uh, his words were never more true than they are now. And, and when I say get into politics, I don't mean partisan politics. Uh, you know, the way that we're going to win this fight is by working with Republicans and Democrats who care about children and adults with disabilities. And there are a lot in both parties. Um, and we have to make sure that they understand the implications of all of these proposals that have, have not, you know, they didn't see the light of day very far before they're now scheduling a vote. And it's very hard for everybody to get up to speed and understand the implications. And, it, you know, I think the best thing that we can ask our elected officials is, have you done an analysis of how this bill is going to affect me and my family? Because this is what I'm concerned about. And I don't want you to vote on this bill until you can tell me with certainty that I am not going to be worse off under this bill than I am right now. And I feel like if we could have that standard and really have an analysis of the bill beyond the CBO analysis, where we really look, what is the impact on children and adults with disabilities and their families all over this country? I don't think anybody would vote for the bill. That's right. And, and frankly... Great minds think alike, Andy. As soon as Joyce asked that question, I thought of Justin that too. That you know, get involved because your life depends on it, and and it really does. And it and you're right. It's never been that statement has never been more true than it is right now. And uh, like Andy said earlier, get active in your state. Get involved in the coalitions that are already formed, and and really make sure people know that. 
this is a life and death issue for lots of people, but mostly people with disabilities. Yeah. Um, how how can people keep up to date on knowing what's going on? Uh, Andy, is this an issue you'll be talking about frequently uh, when you talked about the information you put out on Monday? Yes. Please go to our website, AUCD.org, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. That's a great way to stay involved. I know the National Disability Rights Network you know, has similar blasts that they send out. You, know, you can get this information from your local organization, from your state organization, or from national organizations like AUCD. You're also going to you know, read about it in the papers. But to me, the benefit of getting it from some of these disability organizations is they take the time, you know, we take the time to explain what it all means for our community. And when the New York Times is writing about it or some of these other media outlets, a lot of times the nuances for people with disabilities are not explained or even talked about. Yeah. Chris? Yep. And say, say it's um, hashtag uh, save Medicaid. Uh, Yeah, so on Twitter, the hashtag Save Medicaid, there's tons of great resources that are being posted on that, and people are using that hashtag on other platforms, too. Yeah, great links to studies and everything, and and really good articles about how this will impact people at this point, so um, that's a good resource. Um, I I want to uh, mention that... AAPD, Chris, you're the chair of AAPD. They also can go to AAPD. You put out, uh, you have that news information that goes out. Disability download, yep, so the last edition was just last week, uh, the latest edition, so people can check that out as well. And that website is aapd.com, is that right? Yeah, thank you for saying that, and I actually that wrong a lot. It's aapd.com. Well, before we I remember what what we decided to do that was because the American Academy of Pediatric Dentists got the .org before we did. That's right. And I remember asking you back at that point, God, why did you do .com? (laughs) Well, listen, I want to thank both... I want to thank both... I want to thank both of you for being on the show, but as you can see, it went way too fast. Therefore, I'm going to have both of you and Tony back on um, as we move forward to see what happens in Congress and just to keep the conversation going because the more people that we – you mentioned Senator Warren. I remember when I heard her say, we need to stay connected. We need to stay connected, and uh, this is one good way of doing it. The quote that I wanted to end the show with, oh, my God, this just seems like so right on, and it is, human rights are not only violated by terrorism, repression, or assassination, but also by unfair economic structures that creates huge inequality, said Pope Francis. Andy, Andy and Chris, thank you so much. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. See you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.